Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well-being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine miller Karras. Welcome to Resiliency Within. Boy, it has been a difficult month of August, and we have been seeing so much tragedy. The fires in Hawaii and Washington State, the hurricane in North Carolina, and the extreme heat in the Midwest and the East Coast. So as, as a nation, I think we are heartbroken. And I think especially about the destruction of Lahaina, Hawaii, and all the children and adults, and I have to say animals, that lost their lives. So today's show is entitled Healing Lahaina, Survivors of the Campfire Offer Support and Wisdom. I had the good fortune in um, 2018 to be invited to um, Butte County, where I met many amazing people who were working at the recovery of their, of their community after this campfire. And I am really happy to say that I have two wonderful guests today, Aaron Kennedy and Scott Dinitz, who are going to share their experience of what they've learned that they want to share with any survivor of a natural disaster. And I, but I want to, to say that this show was inspired by thinking about the survivors in Hawaii right now and all they're doing to try to help their community. And knowing that these two individuals represent a lot of folks that still do a lot of things to help in their community. Um, I also want to let people know that we're also um, live streaming on Facebook, uh, live on Resiliency Within. And if you'd like to go and see us, that we are there. But let me just say a little bit more is that um, one of the things that I have been quite moved about is that not only did the Boys and Girls Club and many people try to um, put together ideas of how to help the children, but also the adults in their community. And so not any one, I say, model or intervention helps every one person or one family or one community. And I'm very proud that both of these individuals with me today are community resiliency model teachers. But they will also share with you as we, as we have our conversation today, other interventions that they brought in to the community that helped in the recovery. So let me tell you a little bit about each one of them first. Erin Kennedy works with the Boys and Girls Club of the North Valley as a case manager and was hired immediately post-campfire to support the hundreds of displaced and impacted families within the, within the organization. She's been instrumental in supporting hundreds of families while they navigate post-fire issues from temporary housing, meeting basic needs, navigating insurance, and governmental forms to fully rebuild their homes. And I imagine, you know, Erin, there are many people that in Hawaii and other areas of the country that are doing the very same thing. But she is also an accomplished grant writer and runs passion programming by teaching dance to club kids. Erin has been a community resiliency model teacher since the COVID pandemic and is passionate about helping the whole individual create systemic change, caring for their emotional and mental health. She sits on our lo on the local att student attendance review boards and is part of the diversion and restorative justice programs through Butte County Probation Department. And she's been doing this. I mean, even though I'm looking at her, she looks very young. She's been doing this for <laughs> over 20 years. So Erin, welcome. Thank you. And Scott, and Scott has been with me before. He came and talked on the show um, a couple years ago 
And I also want to point out, Scott, that you didn't put this in your bio, but during um, we have had a project, still do, with um, Ukrainian teachers and um, and community members. And Scott came in on our, on our calls and really gave some amazing advice of how to help children during a crisis. So Scott, I you know I want to you know do a call out on that because that was something you did on the international level, and you do so much in your own community, but. Scott also works as the Human Resources Director for the Boys and Girls Club of the North Valley, and he's a co-director of Ability First Sports and a trainer at the Butte College um, Training Place. Scott has worked with school districts, community organizations, uh, foundations, and service groups providing a variety of services. He's really dedicated towards inclusive programs for people with disabilities and young people that need us the most. Scott provides training and support to community-based organizations, um, parent workshops, expanded learning programs for youth development practice. I don't know when you ever sleep, Scott. Um, trauma-informed and responsive systems and also community resiliency practices. So, so um, Scott supports various county initi initiatives. He's on several different boards and is a past board member and trainer for the California School Age Consortium. So anyway, I could say more about you too, but I think that's enough as we get started. So as, we, as we're starting today, um, and I'll start with you first, Aaron. Um, what's on your mind as we're getting started today in our discussion that we will be having? Gosh, um, I think all morning long, the people of Maui have been on my heart. And um, sorry, I'm <laughs> a little emotional when I think about it because there's so many um, parallels to what happened here and what's happening there. And I just want them to know that I have been thinking about them and holding space for them and and praying for them and all the things, you know, sending all the healing and, and hope and joy to them that I can from California. Thank you, Erin. Thank you so much. And then, and then how about you, Scott? What's on your mind as we get started today? I, I echo Erin's words and just we both appreciate you, Elaine, for your guidance and leadership and welcoming us into this space. And just with a heavy heart, my thoughts and, and prayers go out to all the people in the world. There's a lot of different struggles and wonderful things happening in this world, especially to the people of Hawaii and, and Maui. Um, we both have some people in our lives that are near and dear to our heart that have been affected by um, the wildfire, the wildfire, um, and just more than prayers, more than love, more than positive energy and emotion. We're going to give our, um, you know, we're going to try and give monetarily. We both work for nonprofits, but give as we can and, um, be a listening ear and be there for people if they want to reach out and continue to learn and grow, um, through what we've experienced and hopefully help in any small way we can. Well, I just want to say, and maybe we'll say it. We'll say it a few times during the program. If people did want to reach out to you, let's say there's somebody listening for Hawaii, they have a family member in Hawaii. How would they get in touch with both of you? Can you tell us the website for the Boys and Girls Club where they can directly contact both of you? Yeah, they can www.bgcnv.org. The Boys and Girls Clubs of the North Valley. Um, you can find all the contact information. You reach out to us via email or phone. We're here to personally and professionally help. Um, and even just being in the ear if someone needed a vent or just have a chat. So 
Thank you. Thank you both of you for being on the show. And I think when I first reached out to you too, that I know that there are lessons learned and there's a lot of wisdom that you have. And at the same time, you know, I appreciate both of you when I heard back from you. And I think Scott, you wrote it and you said, well, even though we know a lot of things, we don't know everything. And there's individual things for every community. So I think as we start that out, we're not here to say, oh, these are the things that every community should do. But I think that there is something, and, and Aaron, I think you said it so beautifully that because you've been through this and you've seen the suffering, that you probably have some extra added passion about helping others. And I could just hear it in your voice as you were speaking and, and knowing Scott as I, as I do and having him help us with the Ukrainian project as well, I know that he has that same passion of helping. So let's start and, you know, we, you know, talking about, you know, some of the areas that we, we want to start with when we're thinking about, well, what are some of the most important advice that you can give at this moment to the current survivors in this disaster? So this time I'll start with Scott first, and then I'll go to Aaron. We'll go back and forth. So Scott? You know, there's so much, and Aaron and I have had different conversations behind the scenes and have reached out to so many to get some input. One thing, once again, we want to say is every situation is different. And so we always want to honor different spaces and every personal person and family dynamic in the same places are different. Um, so once again, these are lessons learned and people need to take it and make it their own truth. And we also want to honor the different story of the islands and Maui and the different um, cultural struggles and, and worries about land and everything else. So we just want to honor that. Um, you know, when it comes to survivors and Aaron's going to get into things to do for rebuilds and other things, one thing we really wanted to stress was the importance, especially in time of trauma, of crisis, of response, of uncertainty. We still, you know, there are lives that are lost and there were lives that were lost in all fire and, and stories of absolute survival, people jumping out of their cars to flee down the mountain and the campfire and so much more. Even during those times of struggle, it's so important for people to take time for themselves, to have small bits of another truth. If it's a small bit of joy, a small bit of your favorite food, a little laughter, it is okay, it is necessary, and it's important to find moments to take care of you. Because so often at the time of struggle, people forget about that. And they're taking care of everyone else. They're responding. They're doing all the things they need to do and forgetting to find that joy and happiness. Even if it's a minute in that day, it doesn't mean you're not sad. It doesn't mean you're not grieving. It doesn't mean there's still a disaster all around you. But finding the opportunity to find a little bit of calm, to find a little bit of peace, what, whatever it is that you can do to take care of you, I just think it's so important. And that goes to the survivors and all your family members and loved ones. And it goes to all the helpers out there right now as well and all the helpers in the future that are going to be out there. And, you know, Scott, you, you remind me, many people have always asked me, well, you know, there's this, it's my child's birthday, but I feel guilty to even think about celebrating their birthday when so many have lost their children. And my response is, oh, honor that little being and honor that person's birth and the fact that that, that little person did survive, because those can be those moments of respite in the storm that can give that little bit of, of, of joy. And that doesn't mean that you're not incredibly sad and grief-stricken over 
those children that didn't survive, but not being in the present moment with those that did is also not how uh, communities heal. So Aaron, over to you now. What uh, what's what are some what's some advice would you like to share? Um, you know, the thing that's weighing heaviest on me that I want to share with um, people who are just in the very beginning stages of this is um, don't just survive every day. I think every day I saw people just exhausted from just trying to survive that day. And yes, that is so important to go to the, you know, the food bank and go to the handout and the distribution and there's a gift card over here and those things are very important, but also you have to, have to, have to take pause, take a deep breath, practice whatever your faith is, or your maybe you meditate, or maybe you um, go to the beach and you close your eyes and you listen to the waves. Like you need those moments of um, I'm still here and moments to ground yourself so that your body can come back to its okay zone and really self-regulate. I mean, it's so important because um, this, uh, the unfortunate truth is that this will be a long road. And, um, and the more you care for yourself and for your community and each other, the better you will fare. And I feel like most of the people who I, I worked with that really um, didn't just survive, but they thrived in this were those who found their spaces of worship or their places for community or their um, their moments of rest. And that's that I just want to stress it because our bodies can't um, sustain the constant um, running to survive. Well, I think you said something that's very important. When something like this comes into a community, people sometimes have the idea that it's going to be over soon, that the help comes soon. Oh, the government's going to have services for us. There's going to be money. We're going to be able to rebuild. The insurance company had good insurance. The insurance is going to cover the rebuilding of my home, or they're going to find housing for me. But the reality is it can take weeks, months, even years to get the response that you're hoping for. And I think what you're saying is that when you have that expectation that it's going to be faster than it is, and you're being emotionally and physically depleted, it is, can be very difficult to just do the ordinary tasks of living of making sure your kids are fed, making sure you're getting to your job or making sure that you're just even, you know, making it to your, um, your spiritual practice location, whatever that may be. And so that caretaking from the very beginning, even though it can just maybe be a moment. And you said something else. One of the questions I often ask, can you tell me the moment that you and others that you care about survived? That is an existential moment that oftentimes people will start to cry and go, I remember that person helped me. They, you know, I remember when all of a sudden people started moving forward and the car moved and I was getting away from the fire, even though the back of my car was tinged, right? There are these moments that people can remember that can be part of that respite. Because if we only, you know, focus on the suffering, which is not to mean that we don't lean into the suffering, but if we stay there too long, then that's all there is, is the suffering. Right. And, you know, I think from what I've seen is when people can also at times just even lean into what their strengths are, that that can make a huge difference in keeping some sustenance and energy to be able to do those things, which is also bringing me to my next question for both of you, which is 
what are some things helpers, survivors, and people in general can be aware of regarding their approach to fire survivors, statements they make, questions they ask, and the ways they receive and respond? And I know that we have a, a dear friend, another Scott. I remember that we had two Scots in the training, right? I think they call you Scotty, don't they, Scott? But anyway. <laughs> so. Um, Yes, it's Scott Amick, who he said I could say his name, but I know you have some really beautiful words and I think wisdom that he shared that um, I think would be really important for family members, for people that don't live on Maui to think about. And anyway, for all of us that respond, maybe with good intentions, but sometimes may, in a, you know, without intentions, be stepping all over people's feet. So I don't know which one of you want to go. You want, you want to go first, um, um, Aaron, on this one? Um, yes, one of the things that um, Scott and maybe Elaine, I don't have his quote exactly pulled up. Maybe you could read that. I do. So he said, um, what he said was that um, I was challenged by the pull between needing to take care of myself, my family and my immediate needs while also attempting to care for those that were reaching out to assist. In essence, I was in no position to receive assistance due to the number of phone calls, emails, GoFundMe requests, text messages, and the onslaught of care that was incoming. I learned very quickly that there were several types of helpers out there. Number one, those that truly understood the situation, they gave us space and offered assistance when we, when we were ready to receive it. Second, that uh, those that were selfishly altruistic, they wanted to assist or donate so that it made them feel better, kind of bull in the china shop mentality. And then three, uh, there were those that wanted to ask questions, discuss the myriad of challenges, co-process the tragedy, and ultimately take up valuable time that could, should have been invested elsewhere. Mm. So. I mean, I think he says it well. So go ahead, Aaron. What would you like to add to that? Yeah, no, he says it so well. And I would say that um, when I became a disaster case manager and started sitting with people, um, when I would do an intake, a lot of people just wanted to process their own story. And um, I, I had to realize that they just wanted me to hold space for them and to be present with them and to... Um, have empathy and compassion for what they had been through, but that I didn't need to fix it or change it. I mean, there, there was no fixing or changing or going back. Um, but what I could say is that I was here and I was gonna help them and that, that, um, and that I was sorry that they had to go through something so awful. And so I think, you know, Scott talks about that in that quote a little bit of, we got a lot of people who would say, well, at least you're alive or be grateful that whatever it may be. And I, I don't think that well-meaning people realize how harmful it was to those who had survived um, this awful thing that, um, that it really wasn't helpful in that moment. And so um, just being present, telling people you adore them and you'll wrap your arms around them and tell them you're there for them. That's enough. So Aaron, would it be, you think it would be okay to say, I don't even know what to say. I'm just here for, for you. Absolutely. Say something like, cause I've heard people say, even though they may be believers in, in a higher power, that it didn't help them to say it was God's will. Right. Uh, right. So, right. Um, so I think holding that space 
and and even saying I don't know what to say because it it's often the case that we don't know what to say, right? Yes, it's often the case. So over to you, Scott. I can see you have some some more things to add to this. No, I, you know, I wanted to echo. I think when we help people, survival survivors helping other survivors, supporters helping people navigate different issues and challenges, we want to have empathy, and yet we've really learned there's an intentional level of empathy and when we have empathy where it starts being comparing tragedies or saying i know exactly what you you've been through or what you're feeling you know we don't <laughs> even if i went through something similar i don't know what you went through i can't tell you a certain thing and it doesn't need to be that so I don't know whether it's called ambiguous empathy or just being there for people and also that Kind of that sympathizer that at least statement as aaron mentioned you know i was in a training and facilitating kind of a space and i'll never forget it was in a, a crim session elaine and and we were talking about empathy and the way people try and support and sometimes supporters y'all we say the wrong things it happens we restore we apologize we make amends we move on especially when people are already high or low and they're anxious and and in this state of mind sometimes she said, you know, I was telling my best friend over the phone and venting about my sorrow of the loss of my house, the loss of my children's school, the loss of my church and my favorite playground in my community. And that person looked at me and said, well, at least you survived because other people didn't. Oh, my. <laughs> she goes, I realize now that they were trying to help me, but she said, in her head, she was like, do you think I don't know that? Do you think I, I'm not, don't feel lucky and that I understand how great it is to still be here, but you displace my ability to sit in it and to vent it and to process the love that I felt in the soul. And she said, you know, now I'm not reaching out to vent to them because I felt unable to. So I think as helpers, we need to be prepared to hear anything someone might come to you and be elevated and maybe they're expressing a low tone or maybe some frustrations with you and i just want to say it might not it probably isn't even about you it probably is what they just saw or dealt with or having to navigate so let's give people grace i, I remember meeting with people and i still do i usually had extra water i was ready to go for a walk i was ready to have a snack because even little things like that, when someone's up here and you're wanting to listen or maybe helping, even just by saying, would you like some water? Would you like to go on a walk and talk about that? Sometimes people would say yes. Sometimes people would say no. So it's just being prepared for really anything because there's so many different emotions and thoughts that people have. And sometimes it gets blurted out to you and it's okay. Well, and I think you're also bringing in, you know, we in the community resiliency model, we call them the kind of help now strategies or reset now strategies. And they're not really words. They're not like saying anything, but um, you want to go for a walk. You know, you know, sometimes it just helps me to look around the room and just even notice what catches my eye. That sometimes settles me or having that drink of water. So you don't actually, because I think people have the need to say something that they think it may make them feel better. But if, like you said, this person had lost everything, what was really going to help them feel better at that moment? Someone who was just listening to them and saying, I don't know what this is like, but I'm here for you. I mean, you think that would be something that would be okay for people to say? 
Absolutely. Yeah. Erin yeah. and I were talking, I think, the other day, and it's sometimes the responses we give as helpers. Uh, is it helping the person or is it trying to help us because we're nervous and afraid of processing that emotion, such as, oh, you don't need to cry or don't worry about that or you shouldn't feel. It's okay for people to cry. It's okay for people to feel angry and sad and mad or whatever their nervous system and whatever their mind is thinking. And so sometimes we as helpers want to stop that rather than letting them process that. So. Well, you know, I also think that there's something too in the in the person that you um, shared the story, is that the person was saying like, oh well, you know, they didn't survive, but you did, so almost like you should be happy about that. <laughs> but and that's a different question. I want to kind of just clarify then talking to someone about because that this is a, like a resource question when they're really suffering and you say, well, can you remember when you when you made it out? Can you remember that moment that you knew you were going to survive is a different question that has a different result. But, you know, when you try to say something like that, and I've actually heard people say that, very educated people, oh, maybe you should just say, oh, I'm glad they died and I didn't. That's a horrible thing to say. And yet I've heard people say something like that. So to help someone. So I think sometimes less is more <laughs> in terms of, of what we might say to, to another person. Um, so, you know, Elaine, many times in my office, people would be sharing their story with me and I don't have the words, but if, if I do this, they know, you know, maybe sometimes I'm just silent and I do this. And I think what Erin is doing, Erin says, if you put your, both of your hands over your heart, that sometimes people know that you're with them. So even your body posture or sometimes with permission, just even reaching out and touching someone's hand or shoulder that they know that you are with them, that that yeah. human touch, when you have gone through such a horrific existential moment of near death can be one of the most important things we do because I think we all thrive and need that human connection. And sadly, there are some people right now in Hawaii that have lost their entire families. Mm -hmm. And so that human connection becomes that much even more important yeah. as they are on the journey of grieving um, not only the loss of the people that they loved and maybe the furry creatures that they loved, but I think that person said it well about, you know, their neighborhood that's no longer there, their favorite park, their favorite barbershop, their favorite place to get their hair done, all those things that we think are trivial, but they're not. I remember being in New Orleans after the storms and a fireman was taking me around the, the ninth ward to show me, he goes, he goes, yeah, that was my barbershop, but that ain't there no more. And, but, but I think by the time we ended that there was nothing that was there anymore that had been. And I think that's pretty hard that unless you've been through that, and even though I was there as a helper, I hadn't been through what he'd been through. That that knowing that, I think that was an, a very important lesson for me mm. when we're going in to help. It ain't there no more. Well, we're going to take a short break. And I knew that we were going to, I mean, I'm going to probably have to have you on for part two <laughs> since we've gotten through two questions that we prepared. But we have they have so much more to share. And I, again, we will be back and we will hear more from Scott and Aaron talking about lessons learned from the campfire in Northern California. We'll be back in just a few moments. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. 
The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma informed and resiliency focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information. Elaine miller Karras' book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at Elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Elaine miller Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine miller Karras. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back. I'm here with Scott Dennett and Aaron Kennedy from the Boys and Girls Club of the North Valley in Butte County, California. They are both um, working in that area and have been working there since the campfire. Actually, you guys lived through the campfire. Is that correct? Um, So that was something that you all experienced as well. And they are here on the show today to share with everyone, actually, but also especially right in this moment in time, with um, the people that are in Hawaii. And we know that it's only been, it was August 8th when that happened. That was two weeks ago, really. And that you have all lived through different phases of this, right? There's things that maybe you want to do immediately after. You wish someone would have said to you immediately after. You wish you had immediately after. And here we're now, gosh, five years out. And there's and the recovering process it continues. So um, if you could give us a little of, your, of some of your insights and thinking about when you were two weeks out after the you know little the whole city of paradise was destroyed in a lot of Butte County, um, what did you need then that is different than what you need now? And I'm going to start with Scott this time. Um, you know, one thing I want to say, and I know it might not. It might be obvious, it might not, and we probably already said it, but it's just on my mind. Whether you're a survivor, a family member, a helper, whoever you are, if you're feeling alone, like your situation or your thoughts are, you're the only person experiencing that, 
maybe the situation is different. I just, we want to let you know you're not alone. Um, and if you're thinking something or questioning your will, your knowledge, why am I feeling this way? Maybe some negative self-talk, I'm so crazy on this. I just want to say you're not alone. You're not the only person that has thought that is thinking that. And you are not alone. There's a network out there right near you. And there's a network out there globally in these spaces. So I just want to say you're not alone. Um, it, it's it's hard to think about it. And yet it's embedded in our minds the day of. I remember driving my daughter to school and her seeing this cloud of smoke and telling me, Dad, I think something's different today. And at first I'm like, I'll drop you off at school. Everything's going to be okay. And all of a sudden people are fleeing from multiple communities. Um, and it was so quick. And I remember one thing we did as an organization um, and as a community, but ourselves as an organization, we had, you know, served 400 families plus that were affected at five different schools in the fire area. So many employees right away lost their homes or didn't know if they had their living spaces. We gathered together to think about how are we going to support the people we serve? How can we provide services as intentionally and meaningful right away? How can we support our staff and our people? And so we actually opened up for youth services right after the fire when no other place in town was open. All the schools everywhere was closed and we opened and we did it in collaboration with support of the local school districts, the county office of ed. We had school districts that already had counselors, that already had staff that are background checked. And so we mobilized in a safe way to serve. And from basically 7 in the morning to 6 p.m. at night, all meals, all services, creative art therapies and music therapies and, and dogs and, and everything you could imagine intentionally. And so we figured out how to serve right away intentionally. And I think that was really important because... I'll never forget seeing the different adults walk into the room. <laughs> I can picture this mom and her sister, and she had tears of gratefulness in her eyes dropping off her son, who, who was really in a state of trauma, had just saw, you know, the, the home that was devastated and, the, and their animal that was no longer alive. And she looked at us and said, thank you for being open because I get to drop my son off. And now I could be an adult. And now I'm going to wait in a line for six hours around people who are just like us, everything like me, to get my P.O. box. But my son doesn't need to experience that wait for six hours. And so I don't know why that's resonating with me right now, but I just think as an organization, if you are there on the ground, what do you do? How do you do it? And how can you intentionally support and maybe intentionally supporting is not now, maybe it's in six months or a year. But I just remember helping kids be kids and go through their trauma, grief, and struggle in a safe space so that their parents and loved ones and caregivers could do the struggle of adulting a time of disaster and wondering how they were going to recover. And I, you know, Aaron can talk about that aspect better than I for sure as a case manager, but that's something that's really bubbling up and resonating for me now. Well, I mean, that is something you could do even two weeks out. There yes. are people that don't know what they can do, but you know, you can get some crayons, some paper, and you can 
you can do some dance, which I know you do, Erin, and do some things that can help the kids be kids. Because I think the other part that I really want to illuminate is how much the adults have to do to wait in lines to fill up paperwork. And Erin, I guess that's a good one to go over to you because that's what you help people with. So why don't you talk a little bit about that in the immediate aftermath? Because we're talking two weeks out right now in Hawaii. Um, I did make some notes because there were just, you know, so many things running through my head and, and we are so far post disaster, our disaster that, you know, I actually had to like rewind, like what, what happened in the beginning? I can't even like, remember, it kind of feels like a blur. Um, But, you know, some of the things that I immediately came to mind was like, save all of your paperwork, get one of those expandable files and just anything anyone hands you, you file it because you're going to have to reference it again at some point. Um, That's so important and save every receipt. You buy a sleeping bag at Walmart to sleep in, save that receipt. If you're buying a tent, save that receipt. Literally save every receipt in regards to disaster recovery. So if you're buying a, a pallet of water, save your receipt because these are the things that, you know, people didn't know we were all kind of like, we, none of us had ever been through this before. And so um, when it came back around to like, well, what did you spend on survival expenses? And when we're reporting that to FEMA or insurance, people didn't have their paperwork. So I wanna emphasize, save all of your paperwork. Um, if you don't have a Facebook account, create a fake account so that you can find where the resources are the people who are the most resilient, who are able to find the most resources and and sign up for every little bit of assistance were those who were on Facebook and following the certain pages. I know that we um, in, in Butte County have set up a couple Facebook pages to help you guys um, ask questions about what does this look like? What, is, what does insurance look like? What is the process? And that's helpful. Um, But also it's where you'll be able to find like when there's a United Way gift card giveaway, when there's um, when Red Cross gives the things away so that you can go and sift through your property and find belongings. Um, All of that is on social media platforms. And if you're not on those platforms, it's really hard to get information. And Um, I know that, you know, Facebook has was used like a lot five years ago. Sometimes it's not used as much now by, you know, especially the younger generation. Do you think that's true with Instagram as well? Do they post things on Instagram as well or TikTok or the other um, social media platforms, Erin? I would say that organizations and foundations use their Facebook platform to communicate a lot of information at once. And they use that the most in order to communicate what's going on. Instagram's a little trickier because it's just a photograph and maybe a description underneath versus Facebook. You can usually click on a link that'll take you to an assistance application. So I I suggest Facebook just because that's where most organizations use to get information out. Another thing that I um, wanna emphasize is to be checking in with your local 211 on a pretty regular basis. Um, Either that be their website or through phone calls. Um, I'm sure that our 211 is working with their 211 to give them um, help and assistance for how- Can you explain to our audience what 211 is? Sure, yeah. 211 is your local resource 
information hotline. All you do is pick up your phone, hit 211, and it goes right to an operator who can help connect you to food resources, childcare, diapers, shelters, all sorts of things. But our local 211 worked really hard at cataloging specific uh, resources for our disaster. They also started cataloging survivors' information so that when we were ready to set up the long-term recovery of disaster case management, they already had a whole list and phone numbers and addresses and everything of people who needed that help. And that's how we were able to connect with the people who needed the help is we just worked through that list very slowly. Um, also, right now, uh, the Aloha United Way 211 resource. You know what, your, your sound just got a little funky, Scott. I mean, maybe talk a little bit, yeah, closer to the, yeah. It's just uh, trying to say the Aloha United Way 211 resource, AUW211.org. And they have many disaster resources, search our vetted resources. So as everyone was saying, and that's up and ready for folks to visit. Yeah, so one of the things that 211 does is they'll vet all of those resources. So um, uh, one of the things that we were talking about earlier, Scott and I met and just kind of went over these questions and we were talking about the importance of vetting who you're working with. If it's a big name that you know, like United Way, Red Cross, Suchi Foundation, Mennonite Disaster Services, these are names that are known all over the world for their disaster response, then you should be good. But if it's a name that you've never heard of or some Johnny, you know, Jones who came into town from Canada and he's going to help somehow, maybe check in with your 211. Say, do you know anything about this person? Because they do a lot of vetting of, are these people legit? Are they really here to help? Do they have a 501c3? You know, all those important things that, you know, if you've just been through a disaster, you're not thinking like, is this person going to take advantage of me? You're thinking, I really need the help. And they said they would help. Well, unfortunately, there aren't, you know, there there isn't like a vetting website where you can kind of go, are they real? Are they really going to help me? If it sounds too good to be true, it might be too good to be true. Well, and so, I mean, so sadly, part of the lessons learned is that there are people that come in to try to take advantage of people's suffering. And I think we've already heard a little bit of that, of people wanting to buy the land that the, um, I think the governor of Hawaii is going to be putting a moratorium on land sales there because of those folks that kind of fly in and try to make some profit off of people suffering. You know, right. like, oh, I'll set up a, um, you know, a, a GoFundMe page for you. Just give me your information. And then they go off with the money. I mean, we've heard all these kinds of things that happen. So we want people to be wary of those kinds of charlatans that also tend to respond when there's this kind of crisis. So sure. I love your list, Erin. Um, are there more things on your list that you want to share with our listeners? Well, another thing I was just thinking of as you were talking about, you know, people coming in to help and, oh, I'll set you a go, set up a GoFundMe for you. You know, one of the things I would say is swoop in and take care of your elders, because in our community, there was a lot of people in the elderly community who had no one and people came in and took advantage of that loneliness. And so I would say to the Maui residents and your community, swoop in 
and protect those elders who aren't on Facebook, who don't understand technology, who would love the help and maybe may very um, naively give their information to somebody who um, isn't going to use it in a, in a way that's going to help them. And so that, that, that would be a, one of my recommendations for those. And I think one of the things I've seen in other disasters too, is that many elders have a hard time escaping from whatever the disaster is. So many elders may have lost their peers in this disaster in Hawaii. I think I know that happened in, in up there in um, Butte County as well. And so that's the other thing that the social network that they may have had may be gone. So they're not only dealing with people who may be trying to take advantage, but they're intensely grieving and they're at the end of their lives. And that adds to the the complexity, I think, and also the need to support the elders. I mean, from what I've, I know about Hawaii, they are a culture that traditionally supports their elders, which is wonderful and hoping that that's already happening already. But, you know, again, everyone is also different, even though there may be a cultural um, leaning into that, that there are also people that have come to Hawaii from many different cultures from around the world. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm going to come over to Scott. And Scott, just try to be right close to the uh, microphone so that we can hear you a little clearer because you were a little fuzzy. Go ahead. You know, and and people's generosity are incredible, usually, especially in a time of disaster. Differences sometimes can be left to the side, and sometimes it brings out the worst as well. One thing we were saying is a lesson learned, especially in our area, was the amount of stuff that kept on being donated. It was way too much, and we had people that didn't have a living space and yet people were expecting them to take their used couch and this and that right away. So I'd say one of the lessons learned is direct service support of donations to vetted foundations, to nonprofit organizations in Maui, to families, to their individual set up GoFundMe's, et cetera, because direct support and money is the greatest. They are most of the times those big organizations like Red Cross and others are going to bring in those basic needed items. And so I just say, usually, in our lesson, it was all of a sudden we were overwhelmed with items with nowhere to put them. and nowhere You were to overwhelmed with a lot of things that you didn't things. know what to do with all the stuff that was coming in. Yes. <laughs> and, that's, and when people need so much in the beginning, people have big hearts or send in their, oh, we got that couch in the garage, let's send it out. But then what are you going to do with 20, you know, yeah. Couch- Right now, they just showed up. I get it. Okay. And then for those amazing foundations that are wanting to donate, I feel some of the best was when there were foundations that said, we want to support you. And yet we know often with grants, there's, this is what it is for. And if foundations are able to have more of an ambiguous giving to where you see this organization and you know they're going to do great things, Maybe it's that 20,000, that 50, hey, give them a million if you can and let them do what they need to do for the people. Don't tell them what they should do because maybe getting new technology isn't going to be the best for that funding. So I think letting them do the direct services that are needed. So Letting the foundations do the direct services that are needed? Is that what you're saying? 
I think what Scott's trying to say is that flexible funds are the most helpful. Flexible way. funds. I, I see. Because yes, there are lots of grants and foundations that we would write a grant to and they say, oh, we only do capital or we don't do any staffing or we we don't do direct assistance. And so we had to very carefully, you know, carve out all these niches for the funding that we got. And hopefully we create this whole thing of help, you know. But I would say flexible funds are the most helpful for any organization who's doing response work because they can use it on food to feed their congregation, or maybe they're going to use it on diapers for the babies that they serve, or maybe they're going to use it just to pay a bill for somebody who, you know, is about to lose their house that didn't burn in the fire. You know, maybe it's, who knows what it is. It, it would be so helpful if those who are giving would just give and say, I trust that whatever you're doing with this funds, that you're going to do the good work and you're going to help somebody recover their life. I think one of the things that you're saying that I think is really important, uh, Scott, thank you for bringing this up too, and the way you're describing it, Aaron, is that there are people that lost everything, their homes, everything. And yet there's a person that their house, for some reason, I remember seeing this in paradise. There was one house in the middle of just complete devastation, but that person may have lost their job. They lost their community and they don't know how they're going to make their mortgage payment. But then someone says, oh, but you still have a house. Well, you have a house in a community that no longer exists. So I think that that's important to also part of the community is everyone. Right. And, and I think that's just an important thing to remember. But there's something else I want to bring into, because I saw this a lot in Paradise. I've seen it a lot all over um, in Butte County and in other disasters I've been to. And you mentioned it, um, Scott, is when people lose their animals. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for many people, their animals are like their, their children, their family members. And sometimes people, I saw people minimize, oh, well, it was just a dog or just a cat. But for that person, it was not just a dog or just a cat. Can you know one of you speak to to what you think is important to um, help people understand about losing animals? Go Not ahead. Yes. <laughs> it, it's hard to speak on that as I'm in a room with my dog and my cat. It's yes. hard to speak on that because um, it it is losing a family member for many people, and um, I've heard many, many stories that have made me tear up, but it's the ones about their animals that um, get me the worst. And so just being empathetic to people who are searching for their pets or hoping they're still alive or looking for them, um, I think having compassion for those people and, and those family members of theirs is really important. Scott, do you have anything you want to add to that? I would just add... Who are we to judge what someone views as their biggest loss? Whether it's a horse or a dog or a kitty, whether it's their favorite guitar, whether it's a stuffed animal, who are we to to say how important it should be? And so I think when we let people have space, we hold our judgment, and that then helps people move through that process. Whether they're an adult writing a poem, we had youth 
you know, and adults drawing pictures of their favorite things and, and things they lost to honor it and to to not move to not close the chapter but but honor it and move on a little bit from it. So it's not trying to tell someone what they should or should not grieve. And um uh, yeah, animals are a huge part of it. And it might be something else. It might be something material. And that's okay. Well, and I think that, my goodness, our time is really has has slipped away. I mean, so what I'm hearing is memorializing that if you had a favorite animal, maybe there was a special book, whatever it might be. Maybe it was something that your grandfather gave to you. Um, and now it's no longer here in this in this physical form. That having the openness and the awareness to be present to what was important to that person and not to make a judgment about that. That's what I really heard so loudly from both of you. Um, Scott and Aaron, thank you so much for being on the show. I think you've given us a little introduction, a peek into some of the things that are important. We probably could have sp- we could probably speak for another whole hour, but I just want to thank you both. And if you could say, you know, maybe one word, we have two minutes left only. You could say maybe one word or a couple, just a couple words to say to our our listeners about how to survive and thrive when something like this happens. So. Erin, you want to say something first? Yeah, you know, earlier Scott and I were talking and we just talked about the importance of feeling it all. Maybe one moment you're going to be laughing and feel like it's completely inappropriate to be laughing. And maybe one moment you're going to be crying and feeling like you have to hold those tears in. Just let your body process that. I mean, it's a self-regulation that's happening. And um, just allow yourself to have those moments of, laughter and sadness and joy and worry and all the things, right? That's just how we are going to get through it. And, and, and wherever you're at, it's okay. Okay. And Scott, shortly, 30 seconds or less. With, with love, peace, and kindness. Um, we're here for you. We're here with you. Uh, you don't need to do everything. Do something. Be kind. Because you never know what that kindness will do for someone else. Thank you both. I mean, I think that your kindness and your generosity of being here with me today and sharing, I know the suffering that you all have been through and also um, the amazing journey of goodness and kindness and compassion that I know that you continue to spread through your community and now to our lo- our larger audience. And we're going to try to make sure that this gets to Hawaii in whatever way we can so that they can hear your words of of love and support to them. And so as we're ending today, our 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 conversation, I want to just send my love and support to Hawaii right now and to all knowing that the islands are, there's not just one island, there is a spiritual connection to all the islands and how they come together and to the people there that are suffering and helping that we at Resiliency Within want to be part of that 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 support and help as well. And Scott and Aaron, thank you for spending your time with us today so that your wisdom, and I will say your wisdom, I think you were a little reluctant for me to say that you were both wise, but I think that you've shared our your wisdom. And to remember, you can go to the Boys and Girls Club. You can just put Boys and Girls Club, North Valley, Butte County, and you can get to their website to speak to Aaron and, and or Scott or both of them. So this is Elaine miller Karras signing out for Resiliency Within to remind everyone who's listening what else may be true in their life besides their suffering. Mm-hmm. And for me right now, my gratitude is showing for both of you. Thank you so much, Aaron and Scott. 
Thank you for having us, Elaine. Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon. Resiliency Within with host Elaine miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com.